What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Moan from WashedUpEmo.com. Today, I'm honored to have Lauren Mayberry from the band Churches. Lauren and I connected a few years ago and finding out that she listened to the podcast. The stars aligned and we finally caught up recently to chat ourselves. Lauren is a massive emo fan. We chat deeply about her early days playing drums and bands around Glasgow, Scotland. that helped shape who she is today. She was in a couple killer bands, including Boyfriend, Girlfriend, and a band called Blue Sky Archives. Both are mathy, epic, and remind me of the mid-90s. They're both on Bandcamp. Go check them out. You should also know that the other two members in churches, Martin and Ian, were in a great post-rock band called Aerogram. Their first release, A Story in White, is epic and worth a listen. One note to mention, at the beginning of the podcast, there's some audio issues, but they fixed themselves a few minutes in. Hey, sometimes it happens. And this is free. Lastly... One of my favorite quotes from Lauren that I think sums up our chat perfectly was this. I think that's how you make good music. It isn't trying to predict the zeitgeist or follow a trend. It's just listening to yourselves and listening to each other and making something out of that. Thank you to the Patreon supporters. You make this podcast happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 143 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Lauren Mayberry from Churches. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for asking. I'm glad we could finally figure out. It took a little while, but yeah. we got it in the end, so thank you. Patience. That's all, that's all it takes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, how did you find out about Washed Up? Do you remember? Um, I think it was through a friend of mine who was listening to it. He listened to, he's a big fan of Get Up Kids, and I think he'd done an episode about those guys, or with one of the guys from the band, and he had been talking about that. So then I just kind of quickly followed it on the internet <laughs> which oh, yeah. which which band again uh the get up kids i think oh rad the music scene in glasgow 
what was that community like? Like, did you get into it? Like, how did you get into music? How did you find out about stuff when you were when you were growing up? Well, I guess I suppose in theory I'm a millennial. I'm like the older end of the millennial. But uh, yeah, so for me it was mostly like band message boards and the enemy or Kerrang and stuff like that, and going around to the one person's house that had cable and watching like MTV Two at night and things like that. Um, and in terms of like getting into being in bands, um, we just started kind of playing with people that we went to high school with. And then we grew up in the countryside, like outside bigger cities. So the big goal was like we were going to get to Glasgow and play some shows in Glasgow. And then I guess when you get there, you see enough posters of bands that are playing certain venues enough times that you kind of figure out the way to land in that regard. And I guess it's interesting with churches because we're all slightly staggered age-wise, so we're all like kind of a few years apart. So I knew about those guys' bands that they've been in before, before I actually knew them as people. Um, and Martin, especially his old band that he used to be in, was called Julia 13, and they were like peak, peak kind of early 2000s emo stuff. And uh, they just there was a lot of street teaming, a lot of stickering, a lot of flyering, and I feel like I knew everything about that band apart from the music because I'd seen their stickers everywhere all the time. <laughs> I was a huge fan of Aerogram. Like that was like that first record story in white, like just the epicness of it. And to kind of know that, you know, you were, you were aware of their bands ahead of time was what was cool. And did you, did you think about that sometimes where you're hearing about these bands from a friend or it's on a mixtape or something like there was sort of like an unknown to it almost like you didn't know everything but you knew something and you were kind of searching yeah like I was talking to a friend about this the other day and we were it made us sound like old curmudgeons but we were like in a way I kind of miss not knowing exactly what a record sounded like before I bought it like I definitely bought records based off of just word of mouth recommendation or what the cover looked like sometimes. Like, I remember buying the first Distillers record, the thing, oh, same thing, Death House, just because the cover looked awesome and also just looks like that kind of California punky stuff, which it wasn't, but kind of was, but kind of wasn't. And yeah, I kind of miss those days to an extent, but I suppose in a way things are broader and you don't have to get fed stuff just through media anymore. So I suppose that's a good thing. But um, with Aerogram, I remember finding out that um, through just through friends, I think, at college. And um, weirdly, I was at the last ever Aerogram show, but I didn't know any of those guys. They played a festival in Scotland, and I went to watch, and Martin from Churches was playing keyboards for them at that point. And Ian from Churches was obviously the guitar player in Aerogram. And our manager, the Churches manager, Campbell, was the bass player for Aerogram. So it's kind of weird that those are now three of the most significant people in my life. I didn't know them, and I watched them from, like, <laughs> a soggy fields in, in like rural Scotland and I was like, well, that's a shame for them. I wonder what they'll do after this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, I mean, it is about relationships and I think you being in bands back then and being, you had to be in it. You couldn't stay home sitting on your computer. I mean, I know that that doesn't happen today, but there were message boards and you're right, there were those online street teams that I was part of as well, but there was that, you, you, you had to go outside. <laughs> You had to meet yeah, people. Yeah, well, yeah. You had to go out. And I guess I remember doing that whole, like, meeting people at a show that you knew from online or from just seeing them at shows, and then you would make friends with them and things like that. And I do think there's an element of that in the church's fan base, and I don't know if that's something that exists 
I don't maybe because of the content of the music, not necessarily because of what it sounds like, or if that's something that has kind of been fostered because of the way that we try and do things. I feel like it's a chicken and egg thing, but that's kind of always how I wanted to be in bands if we were ever lucky enough to get enough people listening to the band. But I guess you can't really force that on people. It's kind of the fan base decides what it wants to be like, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, and totally. I think we're really lucky that we had that. And I don't know, even though all the bands, the three of us have been previously sounded really different, I feel like there was a reasonably common ethos within them. And with something like Aerogram, I'm like, that didn't sound like anything else that was coming out of Glasgow at that time. And I think that's what's really good about the Scottish scene to an extent, is that there isn't really like a scene in terms of the genre of it. Like, I suppose there's, like, a common theme of, like, relative melancholy and stuff. But beyond that, it doesn't feel like there's a kind of music that comes out of there. There's just so many different things, and I think that's positive. Um, and gives you more freedom in a lot of ways. I mean, and then you're going to a show, and you're not expecting the same chug-chug hardcore bands. You might get a punk band, you might get a post band, you might get an emo band. Like, those kind of, that feeling of the unknown, but then also there's an acceptance of whatever that sound is. Yeah, I think so. And I think, not, I think you don't get a ton of touring bands coming through Glasgow, but I think we definitely always got a lot of rock bands. Like, I remember just walking past venues and seeing, when I was, like, a teenager and seeing, like, Killing Joke and Converse. We're like, Converse go there all the time. And I think I've seen Converse in Glasgow twice, maybe three times. So I feel like there must be, there's something about that city that, connects with those kinds of music or those themes, I think. Yeah. Maybe because we're all, all little, it's too gray. We're quite gray emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, what stuck out about independent music or, you know, punk in quotes word? Um, what, what, what connected that with you early on um, than other genres or even just the, the ethos, the, like the, like the DIY kind of thought? Well, I think the thing for me that really got me excited about, things like that was finding out about Riot Girl and like figuring out I remember a friend of mine We this is maybe not the most academic way to find it but we watched 10 Things I Hate About You which I still enjoy and basically everything that the Julia Stiles character did in it I thought was awesome and I was like I'm going to go get all these books that she's picked up in these scenes and there's a bit where uh, Heath Ledger character says to her there are no raincoats or bikini girl but they're, they're alright and then I was like who are the raincoats what is a bikini girl I have to go find your son. Um, and then I remember going and like, asking in a record store about it and then waiting for them to order in a Bikini Kill CD so I could go get it. And then I think, I don't know, like a lot of that stuff just instantly connected with me because I, even now when we play shows, especially right now we're doing like Christmas radio stuff, like most of the time the only women in the building are like myself and our tour manager who's a female and all the rest of the time it's just dudes. And I have a lot of great dudes in my life. I'm not swagging off dudes. I'm just saying that's very odd. If it was the other way around, people would think something very funny was going on. So, and even as a teenager, I can think of maybe two to three other women that were in bands. And I think that's really bizarre. So, um, yeah, and I think it kind of helped me frame a lot of the experiences I was having. Because if I look back at it now as an 18-year-old, I don't always think I understood what that kind of sexism was. Like, I didn't really, you couldn't really properly perceive it when it was happening to you. You knew that it made you feel like shit, but you didn't really know what was motivating or why it was happening or really how to name it, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, definitely. I think finding out that like, those bands and Slater Kenny and discovering stuff like Garbage and yeah, 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 it's really 
kind of made me like, I don't know, made me see that there was like maybe it's an option for you to do these things or try these things when a lot of the real life experiences you're having are telling you that this isn't for you and it's made very clear to you that this isn't, the, the status quo does not welcome you kind of thing. And that, yeah, you're right. That, that was definitely that case then. Do you remember the first time you heard the word emo? I think so. I think it was even connected to like Jimmy Eat World, I think, because I was a big, big Jimmy fan back in the day. And I think one of my first like unattended, you can go with your friends and it's not like a kind of pop show that I went to was Jimmy Eat World at the Battlelands in Glasgow. Um, and I remember getting there very early and going down to the front and then about five minutes in being like, oh my God, I can't survive down here. I'm a tiny, tiny woman. I can't. <laughs> and just getting trampled on quite a lot and having to get pulled out by a security guard. So now I watch from the sound desk if I have to watch it all. I know the safety aspects of it. <laughs> Were there any other favorite bands that from that era or other bands that you sort of... Um, you know, maybe you had loved back then and now had played with, or were there ones that uh, you sort of miss? Well, I guess it feels like, I don't know, in my life, it felt like it came in this, came in a bit of a wave, because I remember really loving the kind of alternative emo stuff, like all the Saddle Creek stuff, like Curses mm-hmm. and Bright Eyes and all those things, as well as like the more kind of Jimmy-esque things but then I remember getting to college and then kind of noticing that people seemed to be talking about emo like it was a bit daggy and then I was like but really all this means that is it has emotional content beyond that the genre is really really broad it's not but I think people associate it with really overly straight fringes and hair dye and things like that which is definitely a part of it and a part that I enjoy but I kind of feel like it's really nice that it feels like it's come back around again and then to me I'm like maybe that's a good thing about streaming and how music has changed is that genres aren't quite so I don't know they aren't as black and white as they used to be and I don't know to me I remember I remember having a conversation with somebody about whether Rilo Kylie was emo or not and I was like it is but it isn't but it is and ultimately I feel like she's such an amazing lyricist and she transcends the genre in so many ways but ultimately she was one of the only female voices in quote unquote emo and I remember feeling really connected to that and all this, I remember watching Spend an Evening with Saddle Creek and all those things. And I think the ethos of the way that people were making things and they were doing it outside the system because the system didn't really want to let people in. I think that's really inspiring. And I think that's how you make good music. It isn't trying to predict the zeitgeist or follow a trend. It's just listening to yourselves and listening to each other and then making something out of that. That's amazing. Like, I mean, for you to, you know, see that, that the uh, like like a female voice like that and and being such a connection to I can do this and I I agree the the bands I were in in um in in college and I I had to have a female voice I just I was like this isn't this can't be um just a, a guy fest and having that other f- and then it's also opinions and other genres and things that we didn't even know about um it just it 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 broadened it. And I think you're right. Then there weren't that many. Um, and it's funny. I've had that. I've I've had someone threaten me at a DJ night um, about playing Rilo Kylie. Um, it was really funny. They were like very aggressive. Um, which I was like, Did you know where you are? Like this is not the place to be aggressive. <laughs> uh, but I think, and I think that's great that you sort of. I mean, it is interesting when 
this website and stuff started, you know, no one wanted to talk about the genre. Like they were under a rock because of the hair dye and all that stuff. And I was at Equal Vision Records at the time selling tons of records and, you know, bands were on these huge tours and it was great. But a certain era just sort of went away. So when that sort of revival came back and bands sort of mentioned it again and they were referencing the Cursives, the Braids, the early Jimmies, um, and even maybe the pop stuff, um, it, it sort of kind of came back around a little bit. Um, and I mean, it's still negative. Everyone hates the word. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's, it's been interesting to see, um, especially now, um, with how many bands on the, um, in the scene, the, the sort of the emo revival scene are women. Um, and how they're being asked on huge tours. And I think Kississippi is one, if you haven't heard them, are amazing. Um, and just sort of... Yeah, I'll go look it up. Yeah, there's a bu- it's just very cool that um, that's happening again, and I feel like they were looking back just like you were. They're like, where's the women? There isn't? Fuck, I'm doing it. <laughs> well, and I kind of feel like having been at shows when I was a teenager, I'm like, girls were there. They were at the shows. They were at the shows. They were fans of the bands, they were having the songs written about them, but they just were shut out of being on stage. And I think it's a chicken and egg thing. Like, people say, oh, well, there's no women on these bills because the women don't want to make that music or they're not putting themselves forward. But you don't necessarily put yourself forward if it's been made clear to you that you're not allowed or you're not welcome or you're not invited. And I think that's why, I guess it's kind of great and weird now that we're pretty good friends with the guys that are in Paramore, but like, if you think about it, I'm like, they were kids when they were doing that. Totally. And there were no female voices in that at all. And she was she was a kid. And, like, she's just got the biggest, strongest backbone of anybody that I know. And I feel like now, Paramore gets the critical or academic respect that it didn't get back in the day because they were like, oh, it's just, like, an emo pop, punk, pop rock band with a, with a female singer. Like, she can sing well, but it's just that. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's, like, it's amazing that they weathered the storm and continue to make great records and write great songs, and that's why they are where they are now. But, I'm like, man, it really, I don't know, it must really, it must feel really lonely. Like, even, like, when we do things, I'm like, sometimes it, it feels lonely. People say that you should be grateful to be the only one on the bill, but I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to do that. So, I don't know. I think I have so much respect for that because at least we're in, like, alternative pop rock which is not a pleasant place to be for women but it's definitely a more welcoming place than what i imagine early mid-2000s emo rock was yeah and how you know it was a dude fest warp tour was a dude fest and i think paramore being being part of that and you're right Haley having that backbone and she also had that sort of history of knowing a lot of the bands before and sort of that same ethos but you're 1000 percent right about sort of it's almost like you release the record and then 10 years later they decide to like anoint you and this record and i'm like where were you 10 years ago when you were making fun of it like why is it now 10 years later I never understood that. Like, there's a lot of these 10-year, you know, the reissue gets a better score or whatever the the reviews or the consensus. And, I mean, that kind of gets into your sort of journalism background. Like, I would just – I would look at that and be like, why are you now getting on board? Where were – like, what could have that band been if they were championed like they were? Do you think about that at all? Yeah. Honestly, I think – I don't know if people were – comfortable enough to just be honest about what they like and what genuinely connects with them. And I don't really know if it's as bad as when it was 
what it was like when I was a teenager, but I feel there's so much of that. Like, we've asked him some questions about what are your guilty pleasures? I'm like, I don't believe in having guilty pleasures anymore. I did when I was, like, 18, because you don't know anything about yourself. You're trying to figure out who you are and what's going on. <laughs> but then now, I'm like, I like what you want. Like, it gives a fuck. Like, life's really short. Like, you might as well just find the joy where you can find it, you know? Yeah. And I think it is so interesting when you talk about, like, after the fact, you're given the respect that you weren't necessarily going to be given at the time. And um, was I think it was last year that Tegan and Sarah did the anniversary of the gone, and then around that time they talked about reviews that they'd gotten at the time. And it's fucking horrendous when you look at the way they were written about. And a lot of the time people weren't even listening to the music. They were just so ready to write about what they thought about these women and pigeonhole it and condescend and be really fucking gross and misogynistic and like violent and aggressive a lot of the time. But then now people are like, oh, that was such an amazing record. And it really, you know, it really solidifies what Keegan and Sarah are to so many people. And that record means so much to so many people. But I don't know. I thought at the time people had been as vocally supportive of it. I feel like maybe, I don't want to speak for the, on their behalf, but, you know, it must have been absolutely horrendous to be spoken to or about like that. So that record apparently you just add 10 years onto it and everyone gets the respect that they deserve. I know it's like, that's the thing. It's like, Oh, just wait 10 years. I'm like, well, what if like, I love that record, the con, I remember seeing it and actually Chris Walla was in two rows ahead of me and he helped them write the record. And all I do is see him bob his head and like, he's so into it. I'm like, how cute is that? Like the guy that wrote the record and those are hits. Those are bar none hits. And to have that, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I know you can't go back in time. I know it's all the time and place, but wh- that record, like, that should have, there should have been a smarter thing. And is it because the internet's so quick and you can just write something and there's no sort of checks and balances and maybe there's a good to that? But I, don't, I just, I get really frustrated about it, as you can tell. Because <laughs> it's like, I, it should have been respected when it came out. So I think what's awesome is you started drums first. And that was, did, yeah. that was always the kid, like, I don't know, that his brother had him or, you know, were your parents, and, also, and it's also the loudest <laughs> drum, uh, the, <laughs> were your parents supportive of that early on? I'm, I'm sure they didn't enjoy the noise that much, but no, they were really supportive of that. Like, I played piano when I was a kid, and I think just as I kind of started going up and getting into those kind of bands and that kind of music, I wanted to, wanted to do something. And I remember trying a little bit of guitar at school. But then my hands were too small. My hands were too little. And I was too much of a wimp. And I was like, I want to just be playing something that I feel like I can just really get stuck into and just be doing something right away. Because, I don't know, I'm quite an impatient person. Um, And, yeah, just bought a crappy drum kit from a shop. And we lived in the middle of nowhere. So you can set it up in the garage and nobody will be bothered apart from your parents. So, yeah, I feel like they suffered a lot. And even before I got my driving license, like, I would... I have to beg my dad to drive me and my crappy teenage band to, like, under shows. And now, like, when my dad gets to come to church shows, I'm like, he earned this, you know? He has slept around a lot of gear that wasn't even his. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his problem. So when he gets, I'm like, he gets a nice seat at the sound desk and a beer. And that's, that's fine. He's, he's allowed. I love that. Uh, I I mentioned earlier a little bit about, you know, sort of, like, your background in journalism and working for um, publications. Are you... Because of that, are you aware and conscious of what you're choosing to do, your responses? Because it is, 
you know, there is a lot that's thrown at you as a band and across, you know, how many people are doing the interviews? What are they asking about? What have they done before? Are, are, are you conscious of that because of that? Or were you sort of always aware of that? I think I was more like, I guess I was like 23 when I met Ian and 24 when we started the band. So I don't even know if I was like old enough or wise enough to necessarily anticipate the things that were going to happen. But I definitely had a kind of feeling in my gut that I was like, we need to be really careful about this because, and maybe in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, it would have been nice to be less paranoid and scared of things. But I think we were right though. I was like, there's a lot of people that are going to try and do things to us or make us do things that aren't in our interest. And it's just because there's a girl at the front of the band, basically. And like, we were super careful on the first record, especially about what we did and didn't do. And, you know, like when you're a band of that size, people don't really like it when you say no to stuff because you haven't earned the right yet. But then from my point of view, I was like, I don't know. It just gave me, I was like, nah. I feel like if we start to separate the band in that regard, then it's going to be really difficult to put it back together. And, but then now I feel like you're down if you do, you're down if you don't. Like at least we established it in the way that we felt comfortable with. But then now, like, it's interesting when people talk to us about things and like, they take issue with things that you do as a front person that they wouldn't take issue with if you were a male, I don't think. Like, people went absolutely nuts about the fact that there was a video that had more of me in it than it had Ian and Martin. But I'm not comparing us to these bands because they're obviously legends, but Radiohead do that all the time. If the Arctic Monkeys do that, nobody freaks out. Nobody's like, why is Alex Turner in this video so much? Oh, because he's the singer, because he's singing, he's communicating the song. But if you do it, as a female front person, they're like, oh, they're putting the girl there to sell the sell the record, or that's totally the opposite of her feminist principles. I'm like, is it? I didn't know that being a feminist and a front person were mutually exclusive, and you could only do one or the other. So, I don't know. I think it's interesting to be able to step back and try and look at it with more removed perspective. I mean, I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't worked in in the industry in a different way, but... Yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be more peaceful to not know sometimes. But then I think we'd be in a weirder position. Maybe. <laughs> How did? Or what about writing appealed to you early on? Mm, well, I think at the time I was like playing in bands, and I was trying to. My end goal was like trying to work in documentaries. So by the time Churches got signed, I was doing like production assistant, production runner stuff. Um, but then in the interim time, I guess I was like, well, I like, I love reading music writing, I love reading interviews. So it made sense to me that I was like, well, I could probably try and do this because I play music, so I think I can empathize or understand. But I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't think I was a very good music writer because I didn't really... I don't really like swagging stuff off. And I feel like a lot of music writers actually quite like that. Whereas I feel like even if I didn't enjoy a record, I'd be like, well, this isn't for me, but somebody still put time and energy into making this. And that's a terrible review. It's not helpful, you know? No. <laughs> but it is, I mean, I, I feel that some ways where I, with the site, like I don't want to, if I'm going to like it, I'm going to post about it. If I don't, I don't post about it. <laughs> well, and I do feel like music criticism, how it works, has changed in the kind of snark, clickbait culture. Like now, in order to survive and be a quote-unquote respected writer, like you have to have, like you have to have a Twitter storm about something that you've written. And I kind of feel like maybe I'm just romanticizing the past, but when I would read reviews of records and like NME or whatever, like 
it would be describing the record because I hadn't been able to hear the record because you couldn't just go on the internet and get it. It would be somebody describing what it sounds like, how this fits into the, the band's narrative or how it made them feel or something like that. And I kind of feel like maybe this makes me sound like a hippie, but ultimately when I listen to music, it's because I want to feel something. I want to feel some like feel connected, feel feel like somebody's describing their experience which resonates with me or and ultimately I'm like, isn't it this shit supposed to be joyful? It's supposed to make less like life less crap and less full of bullshit and a, a pointless aggression. So it can it depresses me when you read music criticism that just feels like it's doing that. And I'm like, well, why are you pumping negativity out into the world when you could be trying trying to find something that you feel enriched in some way? But maybe I'm just an, I'm an old curmudgeon, you know? I don't know. <laughs> Lauren, we we the site's called Washed Up. I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, we've we've come to the right place. <laughs> we've come to the right place. I want to talk about some of the early bands because I wasn't aware until. Um, I don't know when I started listening to churches that you had some previous bands and was checking them out. And I just want to mention like the boyfriend girlfriend stuff. One of that is very like mathy and indie and late nineties. And you would totally fit next to, um, you know, stuff like Jay June or Pogo. If you've heard of those bands, like that epic build that you, ha- I mean, was that, uh, what were some of the things back then that you were, you were super into? Cause that's what I heard in it just from, you know, being coming coming from zero. No, that's really exciting. Like, I feel like the stuff that we were listening to was like, well, obviously we were not good enough players to actually be doing this, but like at the drive-in and Hole and Fugazi and a little bit of Idleworld because that was like Idleworld era. And so oh, hell I remember yeah. 100 Broken Windows, still a great record, I think. Um, and yeah, just that kind of like, it's such emotional content, but it's fuzzy around the edges. Like, it's melodic. And I feel like that's how you trick people into accepting the scuzzier parts of it, and vice versa. So, yeah, we were definitely into all those things. We had a song that was basically just a rip-off of One Arm Scissor, but, like, there was, it was pointless time changes. We did a lot of, like, switching to 6-8 and then switching back. I don't really know why. But it seems like a great idea at the time. <laughs> I mean, at the love that you mentioned Idlewild, and I, I recommend that record to people all the time. Um, it's just, it kind of fits in that middle. You're right. It kind of tricks you into stuff, um, and, and leads you down another path. And I kind of loved that about bands, uh, at the drive-in too. Like you kind of heard them and you're like, wait a minute, this is really catchy, but angular and heavy. Are there other bands like this? Like those kind of bands, it made you think there's, there's something else behind or that next page. Yeah. I think that's why I loved reading interviews with bands when I was younger because that's how I found out about so many things with people you love talking about bands that they love and then you figure it out. Like I remember reading like a Tom York interview where he talked about craftwork and Depeche Mode and I was like, what are these things? I'm going to go look into this. And I kind of like that puzzle. And I used to use Last FM a lot when I was at college and I used to love putting it on like random and just letting it go. And I definitely found out about lots of things, especially the kind of Saddle Creek adjacent stuff. Mm-hmm. I would put on like a Bright Eyes record or whatever, start there and then see what it would show. And I think that's how I found, like, The Faint and all those things. Because I, I didn't know that much about the Saddle Creek catalog at that time. And I think it was all Last FM. So there you go. Last FM. I remember, like, trying to get 
like as many plays as possible to show up. Like I was mad when something I listened to didn't have like a connection to Last FM. I don't know if you ever fed that, but I was like, it, it totally. Didn't yeah, it I did. knew. I knew a lot of people that erased their scrubbles, and I'm like, don't be ashamed. Just just be honest, and you'll get a better recommendation. I think mine are still out there. Like I should go look at them. I think it was probably. I'm sure Jimmy Eat World was number one. Um, by far, but I just, I, yeah, it would be like, I knew that I was at work or listening to like a work record for a few years and be like, oh my God, why is that record? Oh, I was working it. Like, (laughs) you're right. Your history, (laughs) you should not delete it. Um, and and I definitely have a, a a deceased MySpace page and I kind of wish I still had it. I remember deleting it when I got to university and then being like, I don't need this anymore. And then now I wish that it was just still there, like frozen in time. So I could see it and see what was the profile song and what were all the the bands that were in the top friends and whatever. But I'll never know. I just have to exist in the back of my mind. <laughs> but also too, like if I, if we were friends, I'd be like, "What's Lauren checking out? Oh, she's listening to that new at the driving track. Oh, I could, like it was almost like an instant way to know what someone was into by the top eight and that profile song. It was. I mean, obviously, it was so archaic, and you could see the pieces that were broken and the, you know, the bling that you could put on your stuff. But you're right; it was so easy about music discovery. Yeah, yeah, and I think I don't know. I guess when I get new music excited for or something like that, I suppose there's there's an element of that. But I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's more established now. Really. I don't know. It feels like not as exciting discovery as it used to. Yeah, or I. Again, I miss that. Like, I just, I always try to think about when I put on a band, I kind of just try to close my eyes, not look at my phone, try and like somehow get back to that moment of, you know, pressing play on the CD for the first time and being, you know, that blown away feeling. Um, But I think for Blue Skies Archives, you know what I heard? I heard some pinback. I definitely heard Discord. um, Discord records. I heard like that epic build again. Is that something you pushing? You know, because that's all I ever want in music. I just want someone to make an epic build and then have it be like euphoric at the end. Well, my friend who I found the podcast through is is the guitar player in Blue Sky Archives. So I guess all those things you just talked about make a lot of sense because that's definitely what what he loves. And weirdly, the way that I met Paul was through it was just through friends, and we were in a pub, and then somebody, a mutual friend, introduced us because both of our bands had just broken up, and then he was like. Paul loves Azure Ray and all that kind of saddle creaky shit that you mm-hmm. like. You guys should start a band. And I was like, does he? Well, you should start a band. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've definitely, Churches is definitely different because we didn't write guitar led. Like, there's guitars in the song, but we were writing on keyboards first and foremost. So maybe that's why the, the kind of emotional build aspect isn't there as much as it used to be. Because I guess Aerogram was all about the emotional guitar build as well. Yeah. No, so that, we were like, we have to put the guitars away so that we do something different. <laughs> I still hear it though, Lauren. I hear it in the, I hear, I think it's, it's that chorus on top of chorus. Um, that I think is a, mm. is, is like a piece of that. Kind of like, I mean, if you listen to Goodbye Sky Harbor by Jimmy Eat World, there's all these sort of like, you, uh, you probably remember that song. It's like 16 minutes long, builds on itself forever. That, kind of moment you're there's little choruses in that song that kind of lead in and is that something like when you're writing with with martin and ian um and you said keyboard led but 
are there other pieces that you feel from your punk roots that sort of sneak in as you're writing or from if it's Martin or Ian on their sort of history? Um, do you kind of do you sniff out? You're like, oh, man, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like a Bright Eyes thing. Or even if it's on a keyboard, do you still feel that? I think so. Like, we always kind of talk about how this band is kind of the most freeing way we've ever written because I kind of feel like people don't, when, especially when it first came out, people didn't really know what churches was. They were like, oh, this is like this, this, this simple pop wave. And then when we survived that wave, they were like, oh, like what is it? And I remember like reading like what I think they meant to be like a negative review. And they were like, churches is just an emo band in disguise. It's just an emo band with different instruments. And I was like, bingo, but it took you a long time to figure it out, you know? <laughs> and even like, we talk about how there's kind of like, almost like musical jokes in it, kind of because the people that will always want to write you off as a pop band are never going to see these things, but the people that want to work for a second longer can find them. And a song like Bury It, when we were writing that, we were talking about the fact that this is basically like a metal riff, but it's on keyboards, so you don't notice. But if you took that opening riff and put it on guitar, it would be like... is what it is. But then you put it on a keyboard, and people are like, oh, cool, it's like a synth riff, whatever. And I kind of like that, because it's like... You're just kind of... You're still the same people making the same kind of things. You're just wearing different hats, I guess. I love that. I mean, it is. That's kind of funny, but listening through it, I mean, this was even, I think, even before I realized you were aware of the podcast or even aware that just to hear that those little inside jokes, as you said, is a really cool way to, um, you know, you're right. The certain people are going to pick up on it and then the others that are going to be like, oh, my God, that's super catchy. Then hats off to them. it's, It's almost like you're kind of. Uh, you're you're uh, he- you're helping people out. <laughs> you're not you're not making it hard. Well, I think that's what's fun about. I don't know. I guess because we don't necessarily come from like the pop side of the industry, so the fact we've kind of ended up at, like one leg in there, one leg somewhere else is kind of weird. But I kind of feel like it's it means that we don't need to abide by those rules or do do things in a certain way. And like when we sit down and talk about writing, like I feel like when I talk about songwriters, it's you know, people like Jen Lewis or Nick Cave or something like people that are really proper storytellers in their lyrics and, you know, can find something hooky, but it doesn't mean it needs to be empty and vacuous like a lot of pop stuff can be. And then when the guys are talking about production, like they don't talk about like chain smokers or something. They talk about like Depeche Mode and like Disintegration by the Curve is something we talk about all the time because we're like, there was radio singles on that but it was a record that really mattered. And just because there were radio singles didn't really need to be shit. And I'm like, I don't know if you could make that now. How would you make that now? I don't know if like it would get signed off in this current world. I'm not really sure, but I feel like that's the stuff that we want to do. But whether we get to do that in the long term depends on where the industry ends up, I suppose. No? Yeah. No, I, I mean, being being able to tour the world, making albums, have people show up. Do you feel relaxed as a musician? Or is it a constant feeling of, I got to do what's next? I feel like it's important to remind yourself how lucky you are. Um, and, you know, you have to be pragmatic and realize that this is this is going to go away at some point. You don't know when it's going to go away, but I don't want to live in every day panicking about when it's going to stop. Because I kind of feel like that's when you start making decisions that aren't what's good for the music or good for the band. It's like panic-based, just trying to stay relevant. And I feel like three records in, we're lucky to still be here. And people still come to the shows. People are still listening to the records. And they've invested in the band. 
in a way that we never really thought we would get, you know? So I feel like then if you start making panic decisions, trying to stay on the radio, that's how you are going to lose those things. But I don't know. I try not to think about it too much because it stresses me out. <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like the only thing you can do is just try and put your blinkers on. And you can only do your best. And when you're writing something, you can't really be thinking about what would somebody want me to write because then you're going to make something that just feels like paint by numbers. It doesn't feel real. So I don't know. Every time you have to go in and make a record, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God, what are we going to do? But then you just have to kind of muddle, muddle through it and try and not think about the past or the outside world in any way and just try and make something. And, like, that's the reason you allegedly started doing it in the first place, is so you can make something, you create something. Um, and you'll, you, know, you never think there's going to be an audience for it. So if there is one, you're like, how do you keep it? But you have to kind of not think about that, I think. And you've got this fire inside of you. You have to do this. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that I, I'm so interested to talk to different musicians about because I feel like the actual practicality of touring a record and promoting a record probably dampens that for a lot of people because one minute you're in a really creative space and then you work in PR for like a year and a half and you don't write and you don't create and then you go back and you're like, right, create something which can't be written about the last 18 months of just like promo and stuff like that. So... I think it's important to like change time and like I don't know, just be just live a bit and observe things and observe people and see what happens. Yeah, and are you 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 talk about that you've done social you're doing social media for the band? It's kind of something that you've done. Do you think about your archives at all or your history as a band? Do you save things? Do you remember photos? Do you stay, save posters? Um, do you do that as as a band? Yeah, but even but like we have like a I have a hard drive and I'll keep like two photos and stuff on socials and I'll put it on there and I moved house recently and I was like oh yeah I'm collecting I'm hoarding I'm hoarding like limited edition posters that we get at venues and things and the only thing that's up in my house just now because I only moved in a couple of weeks ago um, is a poster from what we played with Death Cab and Fool Bathing Culture and Death Cab were a huge one for me when I was in, in bands and I was trying to figure out what kind of things I wanted to write and the fact that like we played we played a cool headline tour with them, and we now know them, and I sang on the rhythms and sit with them. Like, 18-year-old me is completely bored by that one. <laughs> so I'm like, that's the thing that's in pride of place in my completely empty living room. I'm like, that, that poster can go there. And be like, all right, we did pretty well. Even if it ends now, I'm like, we took some shit off the bucket list. That's pretty good. <laughs> Oh man, I love Death Cab. They're they're on the label that I work for. I work for Atlantic, and so they they released their oh, yeah. so they released their last record. And I was super nerdy, um, and I usually don't try to do this, but their tour in Brooklyn, their show in Brooklyn, I was like, "Can you please play your Hurricane? Like, just play it. Just, I know it's on the new record, but you have to play it. Like, it's the best song." And they hadn't been playing on a bunch of tours, and they started the uh, encore with it. And I knew it was just random, Aww. but I still said it. You know, you still you still put it out in the world <laughs> someone it into being. yes <laughs> but i think too you, you know you mentioned you know with death cab like you singing with them on a tr- on a on a track and you've done stuff with the national and, and and paramore when someone asks you to do that i've always wondered this what's your mindset do you go in with your idea in your head or are you waiting for direction what's your what's your mindset going into something like that Lucky that all the people we've worked with have been so open to stuff. So, and I guess we kind of have. I feel like we've got the same 
respectful ethos from it. If it's somebody else's song, I feel like I should totally do what they what they want and what they envisioned in their mind. And then when we work with people, they've been totally that same way too. And then you can offer them, you know, free reign to do whatever. But I feel like that's the respectful first step. So like when Haley recorded a verse for the reissue of Burn It, she did the second verse on the recording and she did it in her house in Nashville remotely away when we were on tour. And she did like, she did the most respectful, like accurate, like strictly adhering to the rules version. And then she did like the proper killer Haley version. And I was like, most people wouldn't do that. Like most people would be like, this is my voice and you wanted my voice on it. So there you go. But she's such a consummate professional and nice human being that she was like, I'm going to give you all the options and then you just totally choose what you want. And yeah, same with Snap from the National when he did a song with us on this record. Like they sent through what he was the rough, the rough comp that he would like think that he liked, but then he sent us like everything else. And he was like, you can just wave through and find whatever you want. And I don't really mind, just do what you want. And I was like, this is amazing. You feel like there's no ego involved in that. And, they're two of my absolute favorite front people of all time. And I think that's why like, they're going to outlast so many people that are in bands around them. Because like, I used to think it was cheesy, but I'm like, there is something about that special factor of something. Like when you see somebody perform or you hear them sing something, like they mean it in a way that just communicates in a different level. So the fact that people like that can be really fucking nice and not full of ego and really be trying to, tell stories and serve the songs and serve the emotion is really rare, I think. So we've been very lucky. No divas. No divas near us. <laughs> I mean, you're right. It, the, 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 it's the telling of the story and it's the, it's the sharing of that story. I mean, it's really simple. It's really basic. Are you able to connect and tell a story and is someone able to then hear it and then want to share it? And for those artists that you mentioned, they're, they're, they've kind of got that little secret sauce to it. And I feel like there's definitely singers I hugely admire and will go down YouTube holes for days watching them do technical singing, but I'm never going to listen to a whole record of that, you know? I'm never going to want to play those songs whilst looking out the window on a train or any of that, like, emotional stuff. We pretend we don't do, but we all do it. <laughs> and, like, I don't know, and, like, there's something different. And we always talk about the difference between, like, a good vocalist and a good singer. Like, a good vocalist can do all the kind of crazy gymnastic things which are really impressive to me, and I feel like learning a bit more about that part of singing has really helped my voice. But ultimately, what it's helped is like trying to give you like a bigger paint palette to work with. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I feel like you shouldn't be trying to serve yourself as a singer. You should be trying to figure out how to use your voice to tell the story. I think, and I feel like that's the true talent is being able to like stray from the road a little bit, but then. Like I think that's because you must know yourself as a musician or the kind of story you're trying to tell. So you don't need to read it from the book every night. You can take it somewhere else, but you know that maybe it's an authenticity thing. Maybe it's a being genuine thing. So you can play a back version of something, and people, you're still, you're still there. People still know it's you because you were doing something that made sense to you in the first place. Yeah. And what would you be doing if you were in a band? Do you know? I think about it a lot, if I'm honest. Uh, not a lot, because I'm like, I hate it here. I don't mean it like that. I just mean like every so often I'm like, I guess when birthdays happen, I'm like, weird. I haven't had a birthday off-road in such a long time. I never thought I'd be on the road. So it's kind of cool. But I don't know. I think I would... I was working in kind of film and TV stuff when the band got signed. So I feel like I'd still be doing that kind of stuff. I feel like I'm the worst front person in the world in a lot of ways because I don't really... I think I've had to work hard at being better at it because I don't 
miss. I'm not like if you go to the pub, people wouldn't be like, oh, she's the singer. But, like, I don't think he would get that because I don't really want to be the. I'm not like the life in the soul of the party kind of guy, you know. So I feel like just trying to help. Like, I don't know, being involved in the telling of the story is what matters to me rather than being the person that has to be telling it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess this is the only band that's really properly sung in alone. Like, in Blue Scar Archives, there was two singers. So I'm like, oh, no, I've ended, I've ended up doing this. What am I doing? So I feel like I would still be trying to, like, I would want to go back to playing keyboards and doing backing vocals or, like, trying to help people produce, make things and create things. Or I think of it a lot, a library. I'd work in a fucking library. <laughs> I just emailed somebody and said I wanted to work in a library. I, I just did that. <laughs> that was. I would love to do it's that. So peaceful, and it's just it houses knowledge. Like I think about being at college, and I would love to go back and be like, "Calm down, don't panic. Like everything's fine. You'll scrape by. It will be fine." And also, by the way, there's other books in this building that aren't about the thing that you're studying, and this is free knowledge. You should really go get some of that and stop crying near this printer or whatever it was I was doing. Do you think, do you, I remember being at the library and yeah, you're forced to read and you're like, you don't want to read for fun. But then I wanted to tell myself back in college, like, did you know how much free time you had? <laughs> do you know how much, Yeah. how like it really wasn't you that busy? No, this is great. Like, yeah, now I think about it and I'm like, especially because I just moved house, I'm like, man, like I'm the adult that's in charge of everything now. Like I'm the one that has to sort this shit out. Like no one else, I was like, we were just, there were so many years of our lives where like, our job was like figuring out how to be a person and learning. And I'm like, wow, remember that? Amazing. <laughs> didn't appreciate it at the time though. <laughs> no, we're assholes. We didn't know. We're just dumb yeah. kids. <laughs> there are any other dreams that you have that you think about, either music, life, or the world that you sort of, when you close your eyes and anything? Hmm. Um, I guess we're at a kind of interesting crossroads with the band. Like, I feel like we're going to, we're going to tour the record until next summer. And then I think we're going to take, we're going to take a minute and uh, just kind of see where we want to go with the next one and probably get out of each other's pockets for a hot second because we always all get on really well and we love each other. But I also kind of feel like sometimes you need time away from people to figure out just to kind of shore up stuff to share. So when you go back into a room to do writing, it's going to be exciting to you, but it's going to be a surprise what someone's coming up with, what they're playing, what they're talking about. And if you used to live on top of each other every day, you already know. Um, but I don't really know what we'll do. And I guess it's around an interesting point where I'm like, the idea, like, what, what is being creative to us? What do we want to make? And is that specifically that kind of music? Is it a different kind of music? Is it music at all? I don't really know. So uh, I'm not sure. And I guess we're so lucky we get to travel a lot, but we're always traveling to places where we then play a show in a windowless room, which we're really lucky to get to do. But I'm kind of psyched about the idea of like going going somewhere and not having to sing a song at the end of it. <laughs> I love that. But then it's kind of weird. I was talking to my friends earlier, the guys that are in Blue Sky Archives, actually, and we were talking about when the tour finishes and like knowing when the album's going to end. And then we're like, well, we should go on a road trip after that. So we're going to get a van and then we're going to go... Uh, to the Highlands and Islands in Scotland because I've never been to a lot of those places. And then we were making plans of all the places we were going to go. And then I was like, fuck, am I, am I planning like a tour? Like as soon as we finish, like a year and a half of tour. But then I was like, it's a friend tour. It's different. <laughs> you don't, yeah, exactly. You don't have the 45 minutes of fun and the rest of the time you're, you're waiting. You're actually hanging out and doing things. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I don't know, it'll be good. I think it'll just be like, it'd be nice to just be in a van listening to records and, talking to pals 
And I think it's important. Like we're lucky to have that balance, you know, because like the band stuff is amazing, but it's not real in the truest sense, if you know what I mean. And I feel like if you buy into that too hard, you're gonna wake up. You're gonna wake up one day and it's gonna be gone. And I think you're gonna be pretty lonely. So that's bleak, isn't it? I just no, mean I'm like, I think I- it's important to make sure you're living in the real world a little. No, you do. I mean, you. It's like you talk to those some people that are on tour, and you just they give you the same line, and you're like, "Oh my god, you've been on tour for like three weeks, haven't you?" Like, can I tell you what happened in the world today? Like, did you watch CNN? Like, you're just kind of in this bubble, and you're right to have people yeah. to bring you out and stuff like that. Um, that's is uh, New York City home for you? Do you feel at home yet? Um. Well, I guess I just I just left. I just left, which is why we're doing this on the phone and not in real life anymore. Um, but yeah, I was there for three years. I mean, most of the last records there. So I feel like it was, yeah, it's definitely a spiritual home for churches forever, I think. Um, and I finally got used to it. I wasn't going on the wrong way on the train anymore. When they would switch the F line, I kind of figured it out. And then I moved. So <laughs> like my own fault. That's what I asked. I was like, I didn't know if like New York like did something or, you know, so, you know, they like it did. It pushed you out, but it was it was just you had left on your own. <laughs> it wasn't New York. New York yeah, City didn't I do decided, it. Well, and I did get a giant New York rat in my apartment like two days before I moved. So I was, if I wasn't going, the rat was making sure I was definitely out of there. That was the sign, Lauren. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. There was. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention? No, I don't think so. No, that was really. I'm just really psyched that we got to finally make it happen. Um. Actually, a cool, interesting interview. You get to talk about stuff that is is fun and interesting and good stuff. It was. And how did you guys meet? Where does the V come from? I'm like, oh man, not that. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy you said that. I was. I really. I. I, th- I, I guess because you listen to the podcast, you kind of, I mean, I do a shitload of research and that's already been asked. Like people want to know other stuff. And especially if you have punk roots, people want to, they love that. And I think that's the crossover um, that I love, you know, about certain people that, you know, you've got this sort of ethos behind you that I can see. And we, you said earlier kind of about how like certain people don't, but like I saw it. I'm like, there's punk in there. <laughs> and even though it's behind the well, pop I mean, and the keyboard, I loved it. <laughs> Well, I feel like that's just—I don't know—like this won't last forever, but you only get to do it once. So when we talk about stuff like I don't know, even when it's like merch or meet and greets and things like that, I'm like, we will never ever charge for a meet and greet ever because I think it's crass and tacky, and I don't ever want to do it. And but that's a really standard thing from like a lot of bands that play the shows that we play and do those things. But I kind of feel like it doesn't really matter what kind, what the music you make sounds like. You can decide how you want to be, and. We were away from a, a steady diet of DIY. So just because we're not playing the 13th note anymore doesn't mean that you have to sell the farm, you know? Is there anyone that you think I haven't gotten to yet that interviewed-wise? Is there anybody that I've missed? I mean, you haven't seen all the episodes or whatever, but is there anybody that you're like, oh, my mm. God? Hmm. I don't know. Well, I'm like, I feel like I learned so much from the podcast, so you're probably much more learned than I about these things. Um, and I like that it's, it feels like you've got the kind of godfathers of the genre, but you, it's very broad. And I loved all the American football episodes. I loved those. Oh, they are. I, I remember asking them to do that. They're like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to talk to everybody. It's not just Kinsella. It's not just Mike. Like, they were like, no one ever does that. Lauren, thank you again for the time and uh, best of luck with this. And it, it means a lot that you've listened and the punk roots and stuff and that you've spent 45 minutes of your life uh, talking about it with me. No, thank you so much for asking. And hopefully I'll catch you in real life soon. Sounds good. Bye, Lauren. Bye. Bye.